I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Cass Van Wyck is a double Dora-nominated actor-producer who splits her time between her positions as co-artistic director of the Assembly Theatre and artistic director of 141 Collective. She is making her directing debut with 141's Bone Cage, running at Toronto's Assembly Theatre, May 5th to 20th. Here's our conversation. I would love for you to tell me about Bone Cage. Yeah, I'm excited to tell you about Bone Cage. Um, so this is a show that I came across um, a couple months ago. Uh, it's by a wonderful Canadian playwright named Catherine Banks. Um, it's a Governor General award-winning play, um, and it tells the story of uh, a bunch of small town folks in, um, in Nova Scotia and all the things that come with growing up in a small town, good and bad. Um, all of these characters are very, uh, uh, feeling stuck for various reasons, whether it is, you know, stuck in their own grief, whether it is socioeconomic, whether it is stuck in their ignorance, just just very stuck in the bubble that is created um, when you grow up in a remote, small community. Um, and yeah, the story tells, you know, features a lot of um, young characters, that kind of feeling when you are in your, you know, early 20s, you, you, you already feel a little bit stuck, I think, about trying to figure out what's coming next in your life. And then you add on top of on top of all of that, which is already kind of built into that time period of your life. You, you, you add in the small town limitations and um, uh, yeah, it really it really just um, creates for some really great storytelling and really good theater. Um if I do say so myself. <laughs> no, did were you drawn to this um, due to growing up in a small town yourself? Yes, I mean it, it's it, when I read this script, I instantly recognized all of these characters. I went, oh, grew up with that one. Oh, yep, that was that guy in high school. Oh, that person I still know and still lives in my town, in my small town. I grew up in. You know, like it was. It's a very you know, anyone who's who grew up in a small town, if you read this play or see this play, you will instantly recognize these characters. They are beautifully written. Um, they are incredibly problematic <laughs> uh, for various reasons, but in a way that what Catherine Banks has done so beautifully in her storytelling is you can absolutely disagree with the um, actions of these characters, the language these characters use, 
but you understand the circumstances that they are in and that they have grown up in that essentially lead them to behaving in the way that they do. And so what that's what I really loved about it is there's this, there is, you know, there is problematic language and there is mm. some problematic content in this play. And it was, and although it is, um, you know, can be uh, tricky to navigate, I think it's really important because what it does is essentially, uh, you know, not pull punches on what it actually is to grow up in a town like that and the culture that is manifested in mm. in a lot of small towns right across Canada in the small town I grew up in and the one that's featured in this play as well and the other reason I was really drawn to this play was um because of all the the young characters um mm. most of the characters in this play are under the age of 25 right um and uh at assembly theater we had hosted these indie general auditions back in I guess that would have been October November um, and we saw 200 people over four days. It was crazy and it was awesome. Um, but what I was really inspired by that process because I, you know, we were coming out of it during that time was really well. People were really starting to kind of venture out for the first time and really feel like we could potentially be producing theater again without the risk of going into another lockdown or, you know, things coming to a halt. And so, you know, for for three years, I mean, you know, this film preaching to the choir here, we had, you know, essentially not had the opportunity to be connecting and meeting new people. And there's a whole generation of new grads coming out of school who have been unable to come and connect with the indie theater community in Toronto and across Canada. And Indie theater is really where you cut your teeth when you're a new grad. It's where you come to play and experiment and try and learn and, and all the things. And that was my experience mm. moving to Toronto was it wasn't till I met folks in the indie theater community that I genuinely felt like I belonged and, and, and was supposed to be here. And so, for, you know, with, with COVID, we weren't able to do that for three years. And there's, there's like a, I mean, without making them sound like a product, there's a backlog of, yeah, of, of yeah. new of new faces, new people, new young, hungry, excited, talented folks. And what these generals did was kind of open that world for me where I went, oh, my gosh, I want to work with all of them. They're all so good. And so I started, I re it really actually started with me looking for shows that had a cast of young people. <laughs> Um, and that's how I came across this play originally. Um, it, I was really inspired by, by that weekend of, of meeting literally 200 new people and, and going, how do I work with them? And I will say I was originally, you know, trying to find something that I could act in with them. <laughs> um, but when I came across this script, I absolutely fell in love with it. I mean, I think Catherine Banks is a remarkable remarkable playwright it's it's she writes in this very poetic way it's absolutely beautiful and um and to your point earlier was able to really recognize this very three-dimensional representation of what it is to grow up in a small town the good and the bad and so it kind of it checked all the boxes except for there was no role for me <laughs> so i went <laughs> okay I want to do this play. I want to tell this story. I want to work with all these young, amazing, brilliant young actors that I've just met and been introduced to. So, I mean, I've always wanted to direct. So maybe I dip my toe in that direction. Um, and then we were off to the races. So, yeah, I think, I guess it, it really did start with me wanting to find something to work with, with to provide an opportunity to work with all these, these new, amazing young artists. Um, and yeah, then here it's we really are. interesting. The, you know, the trajectory of a lot of these young artists who, mm -hmm. who graduated, uh, during, during the COVID years, yeah. some of them like barely were able to get on an actual stage. Yeah. They had oh, to like yeah. do zoom shows yeah. and take their acting classes over zoom, which yeah. is, 
Like, how do you teach somebody to theater act over Zoom? It's so I I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what that process must have been like for them. I really, I mean, one of the the actors who uh, I cast in this show, who I was first introduced to via the generals, um, had told me a story that, so at the generals, we, we offered folks to either do a monologue or they could come in with a partner and do a scene. Um, and, uh, the, the, the scene that this, this young actor did with his scene partner was one that they had done in university, but had only done over Zoom. So they hadn't, so the, when they got together to rehearse for this audition, that was the first time they were doing this scene in person because they had only, only been able to do it over Zoom throughout COVID when they were in school. And I thought, wow. oh my gosh, this is such a, such a wild experience and very unique experience that yeah. these folks have had. Cause I, yeah, I, I genuinely don't know if I could have done it to be honest. It was hard enough just existing during yeah. that time, let alone being in school, let alone being in theater school, you know? Oh, exactly. It's, it's really wild. Yeah. Now we were talking about about small towns and and it's yeah. so amazing how um in a small town no matter where it is there are these same people. Yes. And yeah. um it's I guess it's a product of a small town and the small insular community. Yeah. Of everybody being in everybody else's business that yes. sort of like draws that in. Yeah. Yeah, I I will say I I absolutely loved growing up in my small town. I loved it. I love the sense of community. Like it really was a very, very, very close knit community. Um, It was a, I had a wonderful childhood and, uh, and, and very good experience growing up in that town. That said, I'm a cis white girl. Um, so I also understand that, you know, growing up in that town was through that lens. Um, and it's quite possible that others did not, would not view their experience in the exact same way, um, based on the lens that they, that they have, you know, during that time. Um, but there are, there are a lot of really wonderful things that, 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 uh, that are fostered from small, it's, and, and truly it's, it, I learned, I learned what it is to be a part of a community growing up in, in my hometown. Um, you know, whenever there was any sort of, um, tragedy or, or, or something that happened to a family, everyone would step up regardless if they knew the family personally or not. Um, you know, I can speak to when, when, when my father passed away, like we, we had 250 people show up to, we had to get a bigger venue for the, for the, Uh, the funeral because it was, You know, it's just, and, and, and that's, that's the, that is the kind of, um, care and responsibility that is fostered when you grow up, um, in a town of, you know, 1500 people. <laughs> um, and of course, with that, there also comes some problematic behavior as well, right? You know, we are, yeah. we are, um, uh, products of our environment. And when your world is the size of 1500 people, then your perspective is only that big. Um, and something that I've, what I really love about this play is that, and, and, and something that I've really been struggling with, um, during COVID is it really feels like, you know, when, when COVID hit, there was this real deep line drawn in the sand. And there was a real us versus them mentality that we had already been seeing in the States for sure via Trump politics and everything. But I think COVID really amplified it here in Canada. And we saw that with the truck rallies and we saw it with the anti-vax and, and all of this. And there was a real, I'm on this side of the line and you're on that side of the line. And I was really struggling during that time because a lot of people that I genuinely love like genuinely would jump in front of a bus for who still live in my small town and never left were on the other side of the line and i had a really and i still still to this day struggle with how to reconcile that 
because I know them to be good, kind people. And, you know, the views and the, the rhetoric that they were, um, you know, uh, talking about and sharing could not be further from how I was feeling about the situation. And it was, yeah, it was a, it's a very hard thing to negotiate. And what I really love about this play, and I think what Catherine has done so beautifully is the rhetoric is there. The problematic language is there. The problematic behavior is there, but you have a very clear insight into the why. And so you might disagree. In fact, you probably will disagree with their actions and their language, but you'll understand where it's coming from. And I think that is something that we have really lost over the last couple of years. And when you do draw that big line in the sand, you lose that sense of, you know, there's someone once said this to me, and I think it's really a, a lovely piece of advice that I use a lot in my day-to-day life is there's a difference between fighting and arguing. And when you fight with someone, you want to hurt them and you want to say things that will, will hurt them. There's, there's no, um, impulse to come up with a consensus or a solution. And when you argue, you are arguing to, you are doing that in order not only to get your point across, but to also try and understand their point as well. And I do understand that at some point there is no consensus on a lot of things. I get that. I'm not saying. I, I, I do think it's unrealistic to think that we're all just going to come and sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya. Like I, I, I do get that, but I think we absolutely have lost the ability to, tr- to, to try and understand where these views and thoughts and ideas are coming from. Because if you, if you take a microscope to it, it's all there. It's very clear. And I can disagree with it like wholeheartedly full stop but it doesn't mean i don't understand and that's what this that's i really believe is is truly one of my favorite things about this play is mm. it really gives a very beautiful three-dimensional look at at those communities and 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 that culture of, of small town yeah it's interesting i grew up in sort of a mid-sized town mm. and uh or at least part of my life i was in this mid-sized town and and one of the things that that strikes me moving forward as I've, as I've gotten older is the difference between other people who stayed and the people who left. Yes. Yeah. And the people who left went out into the world and they met people. They met people of different religions and they met people mm-hmm. of different, 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 different melanin levels. They met mm-hmm. people uh, with different political beliefs. Um, and the people who stayed did not do any of those things. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's like trying to have a conversation with somebody who has stagnated mm-hmm. and you can't quite explain to them mm-hmm. how you have not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really, that's a really important perspective because that's exactly where these characters are in this play in Bone Cage is they are at this moment of trying to move forward and they can't for various reasons. Mm. All these characters want to not be stagnant anymore. They want to be moving forward. They want to be getting out. They want change. Mm. And for various reasons are, are unable to. Um, and yeah, and the dangers or the, the not da- dangers might be a strong word, but the, the, the results of, of doing that um, really do foster, you know, that, that, that sort of culture within these small towns that can be incredibly problematic. Um, and it is hard to, when you, it's, it's the classic, what's that? I don't know. It's some old uh, Greek um, myth about the, the fire and the shadows, right? You only see, oh, you yeah. only know yeah, what yeah, you yeah. know, right? That's you right. only know what you know. You can't yeah. blame people for that. No. I think there's a difference between ignorance and neglect. Yeah. Right? Like if if you are an ignorant person it's because you don't know. You don't know anything but the world around you and you and and you can only react in the way you can only react to the surroundings that surround you. But if you right. do know better and you are choosing not to do that, that's when I have a problem. Right? Yes. That's when I yeah. go, "Okay, 
Like, let's let's see if we can figure out exactly what your motives are here. But I think I would argue that 90 percent of people who are viewed as problematic in this country are ignorant. You know, yep. I, I don't think it's and it's and ignorance doesn't mean stupid. Right. No. I think there's a real there's also this disconnect, I think, between being called ignorant and being called stupid. Right. I think when yeah. people think when when if someone is called ignorant, I think they think they're being called stupid. And right. that's not the case at all. Um, and I again, I I really, truly to this day love going home to my small town and it will never it will take a lot to, for that to change for me um it is my home it is my safety blanket and again again i'll say it again i'm coming through this through the lens of a cis white woman yes, right? yes, so yeah. so that's that's i get that that's my lens and there's a certain level of privilege that i'm afforded to feel safe in a community like that so i i truly understand that but um but yeah, everyone I know that still lives there that exhibits what many folks would consider problematic behavior, they're, they're, they're just ignorant. They yeah. just don't know what, they don't know a world other than, you know, the 1500 people, yeah. you know, and, and when your perspective is that big, then how can you, how can you be expected? And again, it's a hard conversation because you don't, you want to, you want to be able to challenge people to be better, but if they don't know that there is anything better, then how do you challenge them to do that? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's how yeah. do you how do you set those expectations when when those kind of experiences or ideas or new perspectives come from just expanding your world. And a lot of folks genuinely don't have an opportunity to do that for various reasons, kind of like the characters in this play. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, we, we really, yeah, I think we've really lost the ability to, to try and, I don't know, let the base come to the table with a level of compassion. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, yeah, I really, I really, really love that this play um, really portrays this town in in that kind of way. You know, there's there's yeah. a real you really leave there going. Listen, I I absolutely do not condone the language that that character used, but I get why he did it. I get yeah. it. That sucks for him. <laughs> you know I, that I was years sucks. ago. I was visiting. I was visiting a friend's folks who were visiting, and. Um, you know, I was reminded through an incident there that, that people who don't know, don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about being at the store and somebody did not give them the correct chain. Mm. And the way they described that was, uh, to say that that person had jewed them. Oh, geez. Yeah. And we sat there and we sort of like looked at this person, uh, at, at this person's father and we said, you realize what you, like, what yeah. you just did. Yeah. And he hadn't, it had never occurred to him yeah. that that was a slur. Yes. It was just a thing that you said. Absolutely, Phil. That's a, that's a, that's an exact example of this sort of thing. It's a lot of the times folks aren't saying it knowingly with the full context of what yeah. that actually means. I mean, I'll, I'll give a great example too, like even for myself when, you know, growing up in the nineties or the early two thousands, like, using the phrase that's gay uh, like, yes. that's gay mm -hmm. and i will never credit to my parents man and my father particularly i said that at the dinner table one night and he looked at me and he goes we don't say that in this family and i went why and he went on a full explanation of why that is problematic and it had it did like like your friend's father it yeah. hadn't even occurred to me yeah that that was a problematic and very disrespectful thing to say because i was 10 and <laughs> you know that's when all the kids at school were saying i yeah. didn't know and it was through that education that i went oh okay yeah i know you're right that is really inappropriate and not cool and i won't do that dad thanks for telling me you yeah, know but exactly. but i would have i would have gone through life doing that if i if i hadn't been educated in that Ab kind of way so absolutely yeah you know we're all and again this is you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think a lot of folks used that phrase during that time, whether you were in a small 
or not. Um, but you know, there were, and also like there were also various slurs would be the wrong word, but, um, maybe phrases that I, I, it wasn't till I moved to Toronto that I went, someone had to point out to me, like, that's not a perfect, I would be like, Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. It hadn't even considered to me. It hadn't even crossed my mind. Yeah. Um, and I would consider myself a pretty well-educated, liberal, inclusive human. And, and, if I'm still making these mistakes that I have to continuously catch myself and correct, then, you know, it makes sense that anyone who hadn't had an opportunity to leave their circumstances that caused these problematic things to be in their, in their actions or their vernacular, then yeah, yeah you know, we, we, we really have to examine, um, what we can be doing, whether it's through education or others to, to help counter that. Um, yeah. so it, so it, 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 you know, goes beyond the, 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 the culture of cities, right. Mm-hmm. And permeates into the, the culture of small towns as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was, when I was a kid growing up in the ancient times of the seventies, uh, Gaylord <laughs> was, uh, was yeah. the phrase. Yeah. We didn't say gay, it was Gaylord. That was yeah. the thing that everybody said. And I, yeah. I remember that thrown around and i don't remember exactly what was happening it was a long time ago yeah um but somehow after i think i said it at home and my dad was like we don't think that's for different reasons he wasn't being inclusive he was like you don't yeah. call people that yeah and we didn't become it more inclusive until much later okay fair and all that sort of <laughs> yeah. stuff but like you know uh, it was it was a word that people said and I didn't understand what it meant until it was explained and yeah. told, you know, we don't do that. Yeah. 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 And I mean, like, truthfully, both my parents were actors. So they grew up in a very, like, they may have right. lived in the small town. They didn't grow up in that small town. So right. there, you know, I was kind of raised within a bubble within the small town bubble, oh, yes. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I, I would come home to a very inclusive, you know, respectful, artsy environment. And then I'd go to school with folks that were using very different language that would yeah. not be accepted in my home. And, and, and again, it kind of, I guess even now that I'm talking about this now, kind of, even as a kid, I think I was trying to reconcile that mm. in my head. Sure. Um, knowing that, you know, using those kind of phrases and words were absolutely wrong, but everyone I know is doing it. So are they bad people? Yeah. Are my parents wrong? Am I like you know? It was a. It was um. Yeah. And now and now I think with with the story I told earlier about you know the views that have been amplified with COVID, mm-hmm. it has become you know now as adults with with people I like genuinely love who <laughs> still live in that small town trying to negotiate yeah. that is it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. Yeah, it really you is. Know? It yeah. really is. It's hard to have a conversation with somebody who you start to have the conversation and they will not listen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I want to talk about being a first time director. Now you yeah. mentioned that you've always wanted to direct. Yeah. I'm curious uh, where that, that desire came from and uh, what was preventing you from doing it until now? Yeah. You know, I think, I think. I, it's a great question. I don't know if I have a good answer. <laughs> um, I think it's something I've always been really interested in, but, um, I've really been focused over the last how many years on, on moving forward with my acting. And in, you know, the way I, I was able to continue to get opportunities acting was by producing my own work. And so, my my focus over the last you know ten years in Toronto has been produce the work so I can be in it, produce the work so I can be in it. So I haven't really felt like there was an opportunity over the last couple of years to do it, just because that was my sole kind of focus and uh, and and the journey that I wanted to be pursuing at that time. Um, but directing is always something that I've been really interested in. Um, and mostly because I love my, one of my favorite parts during the rehearsal process is table work. 
And I absolutely, I could do table work for months and months and months and months and just deconstructing the script and the world and these characters and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think the part of directing that most appealed to me was, was being able to approach a script with kind of just that. <laughs> um, cause I think that's a huge part of, of directing is being able to, um, have a very clear grasp on the story you're telling and the way in which you're going to tell it. And that really comes from doing your own version of table work before you even get to the table work. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that was, that's always been kind of percolating. And it, like I said earlier, it really wasn't until I came across this script and went, okay, it checks all the boxes. It's, it's, it's Canadian because I love producing Canadian work, whether new or, or existing. It's, you know, mostly characters that are, that are young. There are opportunities for young emerging artists. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's representing a small town in a way that I feel, um, that I would like to, to tell that story in, in the way that Catherine has written this. The only missing part is how do I fit in? <laughs> and so I, and, and that's when it kind of, the light bulb kind of went off and went, this is, this is the moment. This is, you've been waiting for an opportunity to have this happen. I think, I think this is it. And I think that light bulb mostly was turned on because of the story and because of my personal connection to what it's like to grow up in a small, um, and it felt like an important, very personal, story that I feel very connected to and very like I have the quote unquote qualifications to tell because of my own experience. Um, and yeah, directing is something that I, I really, it's interesting. It's been an interesting process. It's been a real learning curve for me. I'm not going to lie. Um, I've directed small things here and there, but nothing on this sort of scale. And the biggest, I think the biggest learning curve for me has been trying to translate my acting vocabulary into directing vocabulary because I've spent the better part of 10 years developing the vocabulary that I use as an actor and the way in which I talk about character and scene and, and everything. And how do I now filter that through the voice of a director? Um, and numerous times I have to catch myself going, don't give a line reading. How do you get them to say it? <laughs> what do you want them to say it? Right. Because my actor brain kicks in yes. and goes, I know how to do that. Do it like this. Yeah. And, and having to suppress shit down and go, okay, translate that into director speech. And so it's, it feels like a little bit of rewiring. It's like my brain knows what to do, but it needs to be rewired so that the words coming out of my mouth are the right one, not the acting one. Um, and so that's been a real interesting journey, uh, for me over the last couple of weeks. And so hard. Yeah. So hard to, yeah. to, to be the actor and like, Suddenly be the director and know how the line should be said. At least yes. As as yes. And, and like, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, you... I will, yeah, I will say I, I really, what was really important to me was that this be a very inclusive room, a very, uh, you know, um, uh, best idea wins. I don't care who it comes from, you know, like I just want to tell, I have a very clear vision for the way in which to tell this story. And if your ideas line up with that vision, let's do it. You know, like I am not precious about it needing to be my way or the highway here. Yes, yeah. I have a sense of like the way and the, the, the story as a whole and what needs to be there in order to tell that story. But like, you know, when it comes to blocking or props or set or anything, like if any of the actors, if any of the production team, if anyone, the stage manager, the stage manager has been wonderful, giving me lots of really good insight. Like, I'm, I, I think you, you don't do this work in a vacuum. And yeah. I think it's important to have someone steering the ship. Like, I think yeah. you do need one person with a singular vision, but I've really tried to make this process as, um, yeah, inclusive and and malleable as possible because there's really smart actors in the room, 
right? They're, they're, they're really talented and really smart. And I think a lot of the times, you know, that can, if, if, if whether in, in whatever position on a, on a team, whether it is the director or lighting designer or, 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 are too stuck in their idea of what they want. Mm-hmm. It can be, it can, it just takes away from the process and in the long run, the, the, the end result of the story that you're telling. Absolutely. Yeah. Years ago, when I was in theater school, uh, one of our directors, we were directing a children's show. And this was a director that worked out, you know, they did all the blocking on paper before, mm. you know, uh, but we weren't getting it. Yeah. We weren't getting it. It was like, it was something about it. it was too complicated. We weren't getting it. Yeah. And at one point he just yelled at us. I don't know why you're not getting it. It works on paper. And we were yeah. like, but we're not on paper. Yeah. We're not paper people. <laughs> yeah. We're not, this isn't paper. This is a stage yeah. and we all have to, yeah. you know, work together. But he, you know, it was like so old school, like it works yeah. on the paper. That's how we're doing it. And that's yeah. not a collaborative. No, and it's not, I don't think it, I don't think it serves the story, right? Because the whole point of, and this is the one thing I love most about this art form is, or art, this, you know, performance in general is my version of Hamlet is going to be different from your version of Hamlet is going to be yeah. different from his and hers and theirs and, and, yeah. and everyone's, right? And it's because we bring our own experience. We bring our own, um, uh, perspectives. We bring our own life experience into it right and that's just going to mean that different moments in this script hit differently for each individual person and if you aren't i don't subscribe to the uh you know i was that person and that person was me like i became the character in that moment and i didn't exist i think it's utter bullshit i'm not gonna lie like listen (laughs) like if that helps you in your process fine sure but i truly truly believe you have to be able to bring a certain level of yourself to it yeah. in order to portray it as authentically as possible. Yes. Um, and, and if you prescribe what that is before an actor is even in the room, then you're, you're setting them up to fail. Absolutely. Um, I've been on, uh, you know, I've experienced that on the acting side and I've been trying very hard to not let that um, permeate into my directing style because I know how detrimental that can be to an actor, A, feeling confident in what they're doing and B, what that final performance actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You were talking about, about table work yeah. earlier. And, and there's really nothing more important to the process yeah. of, of a play than that initial table. Yeah. Um, because it's where the director and the stage manager and everybody and all the actors sit down and read through the play and figure out what are people actually saying? Yeah. What's actually happening in the yeah. scene? Yeah. What's the relationship between these characters? Yeah. And I was in a years ago, I did a play and the director was like, I don't do table. Work. Oh, and I wouldn't be in that play. <laughs> it was, it, it was like, what? And then we, so what ends up happening is suddenly, you are lacking essential information about yeah. the relationships between characters. And yeah. at some point, the actors go off by themselves and yes. figure it out. Yes, they do. And they, and they should have decisions. had that information from yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And not only, I remember, I, I, I think about this all the time. Um, Marie Farsi, who is not only a friend, but truly one of my favorite directors in Canada <laughs> right now. Um, she said when we started rehearsals round one of the Huns way back in whatever that was, 2019, that we all need to figure out what play we're doing together. And we all need to be in the same play. We all need to decide what this play is as a team and then be in it. Because there's nothing worse than watching two actors on stage and they're not in the same play. <laughs> And the lighting designer is not designing the same play. And the yep. set designer is not designing the same play. The table work is really a moment for a collective agreement on what this is and how we want to do it. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, I think for a play like Bone Cage, there are literally twice as many offstage characters mentioned as there are characters on stage. So we had to spend a lot of time building out the world out like the the full world of this community that these mm. characters live. 
We had to decide the geography of it. We had to decide where's the church versus where's the river versus where's the, the fire hall, et cetera. So all these places that are mentioned, all these characters that are mentioned in the play, they, we all needed to have a very, very, very clear sense of what this town looked like, feels like, and is. Because I think this play it could get a little bit... Um, in the same way that I think people feel really reading like um, Game of Thrones, where they have to like look back and see like, wait, who was that character again? <laughs> you know, because yeah, there's so yeah, many yeah. of them. Yeah. I feel like there's a bit of a, uh, there could be a trap for the audience to be a little bit like, wait, who's that person? Wait, who, who's that? Because there are so many offstage characters mentioned. So the, the more specific we could get around who these people were and what their relationships are to them and how we feel about them, the clearer it's going to be for the audience. And so it was really important to me that we spend, we spent a lot of time doing table work. And what I have found is from the acting side is that if you invest in the table work, when you finally stand it up to block it, it's there. It's all there. It just, it, it, it it's now just about bodies and space, right? If we know what story we're telling now, how do we express this? via movement around yeah. the state and yeah. if the and and the exploration of these characters is done is yes happening through the blocking and you know the interact the physical interaction between characters but a lot of that groundwork has been done um in the table work and so yeah. it's already very very you're already starting three steps ahead yeah. um and makes the rest of that process relatively um, Absolutely. And so, yeah, we spent we spent a lot of time on it, a because I like it, yes, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. also because I think it was it, for this place specifically. I think it was very important that we all decide as a team what this play is, what the story we're telling, what is this town, who are these characters, who, and what are your relationships to them? Yeah. Because if we don't know that, the audience is not going to know it either. So important. So yeah. Important. Yeah. Uh, we alluded to this near the beginning. We're talking about about indie theater, yeah, and and it's important. But I want to sort of delve in a little bit further into the importance of indie theater, um, both in the um, the ecosystem of theater mm -hmm. in a city, but also uh, to uh, the 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 actors, the directors, the people who cut their teeth on indie theater. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really the sense of it. I mean, I when I first moved to Toronto as a young actor, I, I mean, I had the <laughs> very naive perspective that I would knock on the doors of Can Stage and Soul Pepper and Factory, and they'd be like, "Of course, Cass, come on in, star in our play. Here's lots of money." Um, <laughs> uh, and lo and behold, that did not happen. <laughs> And I think I was feeling very discouraged, um, for, for the first couple months living here. I didn't feel like I fit. I felt like there was a lot of doors being closed. Um, and whether that was because I had set unrealistic expectations for myself or not, I just really wasn't feeling like I, um, was supposed to be here, you know? And it wasn't till I walked in the doors at the storefront theater. Uh, that they welcomed me with big open arms and said, yeah, come on in. Who are you? Great. You want to help with this thing? Yeah, great. Come on in. Yeah. What are you working on right now? Oh, cool. You want to do it here? Great. Like it was just this, like, I just found my people. <laughs> and all of a sudden I went, oh, no, no, no. I'm supposed to be here. These are my peers. These are the people I want to be working with. And all of those people I met during that time, that incredibly influential time, are people that I now work with you know, professionally, like Michael Ross Albert, who I collaborate with all the time on was, was, was a person I met during that. Um, you know, Claire Burns, who although isn't, uh, in Toronto anymore, um, she's working a lot of, uh, some programming in, in Hamilton. She's a huge mentor of mine and I message her a lot asking her questions about running a theater company and, and, and all of those people I met then. And, um, I understood the the immense impact that it had it it had for me during that time, um, and because there was a physical theater space to gather at and be a part of, to be a part of the community at was was just it truly 
you know, life altering for me. Um, and so I've always from, from the start understood the importance of indie theater for young actors. And as I kind of move out of the, I'm still, I mean, go down the rabbit hole of what emerging artist means like who actually have i been emerging for 10 years i don't know <laughs> um uh but as i'm i'm kind of finding I, I would be i would argue i'm on the precipice of what my next you know iteration of my life and career is as being in my mid-30s now i'm realizing that you know especially after covid it is incredibly important to preserve the the spaces for indie theater and also the culture of indie theater in Toronto and all throughout Canada. Um, because I think you said at the beginning, right? It's part of an ecosystem. And if you take one animal out of the ecosystem, the rest are affected, right? Doesn't matter how big or small that animal is. Um, it's all part of a, you know, a link. And. I mean, the people that do go on to work professionally at the bigger places, Stratford, Shaw, Can Stage, whatever, all cut their teeth in in basements in Parkdale, like at yeah. Assembly Theater, right? Like that's where they got to learn. And I say this all the time to folks that come in. I go, yeah, come in, be good, be terrible, be really bad, and then be brilliant again. Like, just come in and throw stuff at the wall and see what works and see what you like and see what you don't like and do all the things, right? Let this be a space for exploration and creation and experimentation and learning and community and all those things. All those things that I think at the core of are the core reasons why we all wanted to do this in the first place. You know, I think we can get really caught up in the career side of it because the fact of the matter is we have to eat, we have to pay rent, we have to, you know, buy clothes. Yeah. Um, so money, unfortunately, is part of the equation. Um, but at the, 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 the essence of what we all enjoy about this work is the community, is the fun, is the exploration, is the collaboration. And indie theater, I think, really, because there's no money, <laughs> yeah. because there's absolutely no money to be made, we can just focus on that, you know? And I think, yeah, I think for, for any, any, any artist in any stage of their career, I think it's, I think it's an important thing to remember. And I think indie theater, um, we need to continue to advocate to keep it not only surviving, but thriving. And that's, yeah. that's the part that I'm really interested in focusing on right now is how do we at the assembly theater how do we move from this survival structure that we're in which is a month to month to month to month thing where no one gets paid and we're all just volunteer because we know we're passionate about it and we know it's important and how do we move it into a stage that um allows it to thrive where it still provides all the things that we i just listed but we're not scrambling every month to be able to figure out how we're going to pay rent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Indie theater is like, it's, that's it, man. It's like, it's my, it's my true love. <laughs> it it's really the place is. where it's the place where not only actors get to cut their teeth, but playwrights yes, and, and lighting designers and, and exactly. costume designers. And like, yes. and this is what I really wanted bone cage to be was this. Yes. The characters were all young. And so, yes, I had an opportunity to be casting, young emerging artist in this play but i also saw this as an opportunity to be giving young designers a chance too. you know yeah. i'm working with a really wonderful costume designer who's in her final year at uft i'm you know the 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 set giant designer jb nels is as young as well and she's early in her career in that regard too you know and so it's there's there's i really you know, any work that I do moving forward, um, I always want to try, especially at assembly specifically, always want it to be, um, with, through the lens of helping to create opportunities that, um, you know, young artists wouldn't necessarily get at the larger institutions at this stage in their career. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so yeah, it's you're right. It goes it goes beyond just the actors. It's it's any any artist 
at, at, at an early stage in their career. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, a lot of the, the real indie, yeah, like, like, uh, Sam, yeah, Sam Castle. Like, yeah. There is no grant money coming in. No, zero. So it's like the only <laughs> yeah. way that you can support yeah. yourself is either by private donations or through ticket sales. Yes. And it's a very can, dangerous game when those yes. are your only two revenue sources. Yeah. Um, which is why at Assembly we're really, um, really focused on trying to figure out if two boards, a charitable, um, uh, status is the way to go because. Yeah. And, and here's the other thing we, I think we really talked about this. A, a lot of folks, it really, I mean, during COVID, the light was shone on all the holes in our society, whether it's healthcare, whether it's yeah. socioeconomic disparities, whatever it was, the lights were shone on it. And within the theater, Toronto theater community, I think the one thing that became abundantly clear is that there is zero operational funding available to indie theater. Um, and it's very, very, very hard for us to access money for operational costs that are, that, that are not based in project by project by project thing. So it's great. You get a, you know, $25,000 grant to do a play, which will pay your rent for that month. But then yeah. what? Yeah. Right. Like, and, and, and be getting access to funds that will allow you to, I mean, I've said this from the beginning with, with my team at assembly is even, even. Our rent is, you know, relatively low. Even if we could just pay, have our rent funded for the year, what that would do, the stress it would take off us so we could actually focus on initiatives that we want to be focused on and use the revenue through, through bookings and rentals and all of that to go back into the community to fund things that will only make the community stronger. That Oh my gosh, would be yeah. such a game changer. But instead, yeah. we're focused on trying to figure out how many hours we need to rent the space next month to make sure we can pay the electricity bill. Like, right. and, and, and our focus is taken away from what we actually want to be doing, which is creating opportunities and events and community events and all the stuff to be fostering a, a, a stronger community in Toronto and. And, and, and truly from an operating budget standpoint, money, <laughs> like the yeah. amount of money these larger institutions get for operating costs is astronomical. Yeah. And if I had 0.5% of what that grant is that they got, what I could do with that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really wild to me. Um, and I think it's, I think it's, it's hard. And, and I said it earlier, right? There's a difference between ignorance and neglect. And yeah. we spent Tori Urquhart, a uh, big shout out to Tori Urquhart, the biggest indie theater advocate that I know who rallied the troops during COVID and has spoken with more Toronto counselors than I have fingers and toes. And she's, she's just a remarkable human being. Um, what, what she, allowed us to do during that time is gave us a platform to really advocate all of this and it was wonderful to be heard but i'm very conscious of the fact that a lot of the actions that were supposed to be taken during that time by you know toronto city council by tapa by tac etc well tapa i should leave out tac and and um and uh, Toronto City Council did not happen. Right. Um, and so it's wonderful to get the platform, but if nothing actually comes out of it, yeah. now I start going, okay, well, now it's neglect. Yeah. Because you yeah. heard me and you heard me tell you the reasons why, and now you're choosing not to do anything about it. I can understand you didn't understand before. I get it. But now that you are actively choosing not to do that, that's when I have a problem. Yeah. Um, and we just, I mean, just because it's completely top of mind and maybe I will get slandered for this, but oh well. Um, the, uh, TAPA held their, uh, uh, general meeting, their, 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 uh, community meeting. Right. Town hall meetings, um, a, a couple months ago. Um, and, uh, a lot of what they were talking about was, um, Dora consideration and, and, um, 
uh, the what qualifies what and how many, what the requirements are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they were essentially doing a review with the community to see if the way it's set up now is still relevant moving forward. Now, I, I came to this town hall and truthfully, I was one of three people that showed up from the indie theater community, which was a little disappointing, but also kind of exciting to me because I was like, great, I have the floor. So now I can, like, you know, I can really tell them I have an opportunity to really tell them how I feel about certain things. Um, and one of the proposed changes was, and we, and, and for those who don't know, the Dora categories are mostly determined by budget, right? It's mostly a financial consideration for whether you are indie theater, general theater, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one of their proposals was to, uh, essentially the, the threshold between indie theater and general theater is a hundred thousand dollars, which truthfully, if I have, $10,000, I am skipping down the street. So 100000 is like not even, not even like remotely in my atmosphere. And what they were hearing from the general in general, uh, theater department was that their expenses have gone up because of inflation, because of, because, because, because. And so. Um, they want to raise the threshold to $150,000. Um, to be anything under that is considered indie theater. Now, I raised some serious concerns with that. Um, because I mean, I think there's already a remarkable discrepancy between for what we consider indie theater in Toronto. And I get, listen, I know that I'm not the gatekeeper of what indie theater is. I'm not standing and allowing people to come in and out. I don't get to decide that. But where, but what I'm seeing is most of the people around me that I would consider indie theater or, or my peers, that threshold is like crazy. Like that's not even remote, like, it's not even on the map, man. Like it's not, it's not even remotely close to the numbers that we are reaching when we're producing work that would in theory be Dora considered. Even, a, right. even, even, you know, I would argue Tough Jews was one of the, one of the most successful shows that the storefront ever put on. And that budget wasn't even close. It's like maybe 20, like maybe. Yeah. So, so like, it's, it's crazy to me that they, the, the idea would be that they would up it. And lo and behold, today I got an email from Tapa saying yeah. all the changes they're making this year. And that was one of the changes. And I'm not going to lie, Phil, I got really upset. Cause of I course got, you did. Was I not hurt at all? What you were saying is I would rather cater to the higher section of the indie theater community than the lower section. Well, and, not just the higher section. They're now catering to people that, to groups that, that perhaps weren't in the indie section. Now well, there's that too. They like, can outspend the in, the truly indie groups. Tell me about it. It's and, so and goddamn frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. And listen, Tapa made some other changes when it comes to the amount of shows. So it was normally nine. They've made it seven. So right. like there are some, I'm not saying across the board, they didn't listen. They did listen in some areas, but that was a big one for me. And that really sent a very clear message. Yeah. And I'm very concerned with what that message is, how that message is going to resonate with the rest of the indie theater community here in Toronto, because I, I can't imagine it's going to go over well. And Tapa is a, subscription-based service yeah and if your service is not serving then we will stop subscribing yeah like and and listen i know listen i and it's a weird game to play because i was lucky enough to be door nominated double door nominated yeah. last year and the up the doors it's open for me phil this year it's sure. wild and stupid what a stupid system because yeah. was my acting any better that year i don't know like it's such a silly awards are so silly yeah but but what's not silly is the opportunities it provided for me so i'm like yeah. in order to i understand there is a business side of this i get there is a game you have to play there's there is politics i get it i'm not i'm not ignorant to that but 
I'm willing to play the game up until a point. And, and I understand the benefits of what being door, not winning, just being nominated did for me. Yeah. The, yeah. the amount of, the amount of general auditions I got this year, crazy. Not once yeah. in my life have I got any of these. And now yeah. all of a sudden I'm being seen by everyone. And the only difference is that I'm door nominated. Yeah. And so the impact that that can have on a young indie theater artist career is 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 crazy and what yeah. you are essentially saying to the indie theater community by upping that threshold is we're going to make it harder for you to to yeah, we're going to make absolutely. it harder for you to potentially get a nomination that could have that that could change the trajectory of your career at that moment you're in yeah. and that i do not think is great for no, our community it's it's terrible for indie theater it's terrible for indie theater because now Groups that didn't previously qualify as indie will be able to to throw their stuff into yeah. the ring. Yeah. They will have, you know, they can afford, you know, more expensive, you know, yes. more expensive actors doesn't necessarily better actors, yes. but certainly a name gets attention. Yep. And, and so now, you know, yeah. yeah, and it's it's hard to it's a it's hard to compete, but it's I mean, like, what does competing mean? I mean, I use compete in the Dora sense, right? Yes. Because I know what winning or being nominated for one of those means to yeah. someone at the stage that I'm in versus the stage of the professional actor who's working at Straw, Shaw and Stratford yeah. and, 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 right? Yeah. And the difference that that'll make for those Shaw and Stratford actors is minimal. <laughs> what it'll change for me is yeah. huge. Yeah. And, and, and that's where it gets incredibly problematic for me. Absolutely. And it's, it's just, it's so frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, oh well. (laughs) Tap if you're listening. Please still take Bone Cage into consideration for the Door Awards this year. And it's hard, right? How do you bite the hand that feeds you, right? Like knowing that, knowing that this is a system that gives out these awards that essentially affects your career. Like you have to play the game a little bit and, yeah. and I get it. And then, and I know the type of folks mean well. I think they're all lovely, lovely human beings. And I got to give props to, um, to the indie theater, uh, advocates within the, within the tap on the tap of board. Um, uh, uh, they really, uh, you know, they hold these monthly, um, uh, TAPA, uh, caucus meetings that any indie theater artists are allowed to join and talk and talk about their problems. And then they bring it back to TAPA. Like, I know it feels like there is a real effort being made. It's just when stuff like this happens, I go, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. is it? There's, I, there's, I don't you know, know, you know, we, we, we have this thing. I don't know if it's unique to Toronto. I don't know if it's unique to Canada. I don't know if it just the way the theater world is, but we have this thing where, you know, oh, we oh, Phil, you're cutting out. Oh, sorry. Can you hear oh. me? Oh, now I can hear you. Now I can. Okay, hear good. You. Um, we have this thing that we do where we're almost afraid to criticize. Yeah. Even though we criticize because we love the thing and we want it to be better. Yes, of course. And yet, still, whenever we're about to say something, that might be slightly critical. We do the whole like, oh, look over the shoulder. Who might? Yes. Who might hear this? Yeah. Because we don't want to be penalized for it, and yet. What we are doing when we criticize is show how much we care. Yeah. 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 And it's, and it's, and it's in, it's in service of the, the, I mean, yes, selfishly because I am in the indie theater community, but I'd yeah. like to think it goes beyond me. Right. I, yeah. I see the impact that being Dora nominated had on me and I want that impact for other people. Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. You know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important to, to continue to shout as loud as we possibly can to the larger, the folks with the money, the folks who have influence, the folks that are making these kind of decisions that, you know, and, and, and what it also says to me, Phil, is like, you really don't understand the parameters we're actually working in here. No. If you genuinely no. think that $150,000 is, is in indie? the realm is and then that's yeah i mean yeah. but again what's indie i don't know these indie caucuses have been really really insightful for me right because right. certain companies are showing up that i would for consider in no, her no. but they do 
So it forced me to take a step back and go, okay, well, if they consider themselves indie theater, then I guess there are just different thresholds of indie theater. Like there are categories within indie theater. So, okay, fine. Like if the true definition of indie theater is something that is independent from mainstream, fine. Right. That is, that is a, that is a fair definition and we can go with that definition. But we also have to recognize that within the indie theater community, there are levels and there are, are thresholds, um, within that. And what I think Tapa is failing to realize is that there are the thresholds, the, the discrepancy between what the top tier of indie theater that they're defining and the bottom tier is like, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like we could keep talking about <laughs> oh, this for ages. We can do this Cass. for ages, Phil. I know. For ages. <laughs> I know. Cass Van Wick, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your rehearsal day. And I'm looking forward to Bone Cage. Yeah, thanks, Phil. We're excited to have you here. And um, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk as always. I am so grateful for the work that you do and the way you advocate for indie theater. Um, we need more voices like yours, man. And so um, thank you. Thank you for bringing this podcast back. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.